All right, well, if you've got your Bibles, and we hope you do, will you please open them to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And today we will conclude our look at this portion of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. And this morning we'll pick it up in verse 45. Matthew 24, verse 45. And Jesus begins with a question. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find him so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all of his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on that day when he is not looking for him and at that hour which he is not aware of, and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. Therefore, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The section of scripture we are in is called the Olivet Discourse. It is a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples there on the Mount of Olives after exiting the city of Jerusalem. And in that conversation, the disciples in verse 3 asked Jesus two questions concerning his return, his second coming, and the destruction of the temple. In verse 3 of chapter 24, the disciples ask, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? It is the second question that we have been answering throughout the preceding verses in chapter 24, And he ends chapter 24 with a parable that then launches into two further parables, three uh, in the chapter following chapter 25, which is also part of the same discourse, but we're only looking at chapter 24 together. The parables begin to explore the inward attitude towards the idea of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Up until this point, we have been looking at outward events, events that we can see in our world occurring, indicating that Jesus' return is near. But now Jesus begins to probe the depth of their mind and hearts by asking them these and teaching them these parables so that they would consider what their reactions would be. What would be their attitudes that they carry with them concerning the idea of a physical, literal return of Jesus Christ? Specifically, the idea of the timing of this occurrence. Since 2,000 years have passed, since Jesus Christ walked this earth, it would be easy to conclude that, well, this must be hypothetical or allegorical or just simply a metaphor because it's been 2,000 years. He's not coming back. You know, he would have by now. You know, he's not going to come back when inflation's this high. It's ridiculous. You know, I'm paying $10 a gallon of gas in California. It's not going to happen. 
And yet the Bible goes on to say and tell us that this time that he has given the world, these 2,000 years, were in the hope that all would come to know him. It was an expression of his long-suffering towards his creation in the hopes that they would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But as we see the current events taking place, we know that we are getting closer. We don't know when exactly. So if you're here to find out that information, I'm going to sadly disappoint you. But I can say this with confidence, we are 2,000 years closer than we were before, to say that for sure. But I think as Christians, we need to take a step back and to consider what our heart attitude is to the idea of the second coming of Jesus Christ. We know that as you read through the New Testament, the apostles lived with the imminent idea that he could return at any time. And they lived accordingly. They lived in the anticipation that Jesus could interrupt their day at any time in his return. And they longed for it, and they looked for it with great anticipation. But as time went on, it showed that Jesus was not yet set to return, a time that only the Father knows the exact moment that that will occur. But today, as 2,000 years have passed, we are far removed from the culture and the society in which Jesus lived We now live in a society that seems so far from the biblical, historical understanding uh, that the Bible offers us that sometimes it's hard to relate to them. And as a result, it may damper our ideas of that imminent return. And we may grow complacent and apathetic. Growing up in the incredible prosperity that we've enjoyed in the United States for the last 70 years. Sometimes our Christianity isn't dependent upon faith, but simply governed by the prosperity in which we enjoy. But Jesus asks us to consider our heart and mind attitude concerning his second coming. And he does so by using a technique, a tool called a parable. A parable is simply a story used to illustrate an example. It's used to drive home a point. It is, is used to bring emphasis. But it's also used to make you think, to consider, to ponder what is being said. Now, I agree fully with the pastor who once said that I heard that he encouraged his students to hold off on teaching any of the parables of Jesus until they have taught the Bible for 30 years. They are some of the most complex sections of Scripture. A lot of very unusual conclusions have been drawn by, through parables concerning Christian identity, Christian practice, etc. And often these misinterpreted applications are derived from the fact that we overcomplicate what Jesus is saying. Sometimes we overcomplicate it, and I don't want to dismiss the majestic nature of God's Word, but I have discovered after studying the Bible for 30 years that sometimes the simple interpretation is the accurate one. And so Jesus here gives us a parable. This parable contrasts two servants that were left in charge of the owner's home as he went out, left, 
and was set to return at an unannounced time. One servant, as you can see, faithfully executed his responsibilities. And as a result, when the master of the home returned, he gave that servant the reward of more responsibility. He gave the servant a, uh, a higher level of uh, prominence within the household. But there was another servant that he contrasts the good servant with, the evil servant, and that servant simply dismissed the idea of an immediate return. And because it didn't happen immediately, the master's return, the evil servant then went on to say, you know what, I don't think the old man's ever coming back. And he went out and began to live his life in, with an indifference. Began just to party it up, you know. And he began to just carouse and he began to, you know, just hit the bars and so forth. He didn't really care. He beat his fellow servants. And when the master did come back and discover that he had been unfaithful to his responsibilities, he suffered the consequences thereof. But let us begin by looking at these two together. And I believe they will truly explore our own hearts as we do so. Because again, I think what Jesus is prompting us to do is to consider our attitude towards his return. Let's begin with the one who is found to be faithful. Jesus begins by asking the question, who then is a faithful and wise servant? Will you identify with this one? Well, how can I? He goes on to explain by describing what a faithful and wise servant looks like. Whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. In that culture, again, we're removed, but in that culture, we discover that it was commonplace for owners of property and land and large homes to leave and travel. And of course, when you traveled anywhere, it took much longer than it does today. I mean, they didn't simply just hop in a cab, drive down to O'Hare. Oh, for, uh, excuse me. They didn't hop in a cab, wait in traffic as they drove down to O'Hare, hop on a plane and arrive in a couple of hours and where they hoped to, uh, to vacation or to visit. Everything took time. And so it was the responsibility of the individual who was left behind to take care of the household, which would also include making sure that the other servants of the home were taken care of while he is gone. And to continue as if the master was still there himself. Again, this is a cultural example. It is a parable that they could easily relate to. And Jesus said that one who acts properly is considered faithful, notice the words here, and wise in doing so. That would mean someone who doesn't do these things would be unfaithful and foolish. Now, let us understand that the word foolish in the Bible means someone who knows what they should do and decides not to do it. Someone who knows what they should do and decides not to do it. And this foolishness would lead to their judgment and separation from God, indicating that they didn't truly believe in him to begin with. But the faithful servant 
Let us notice here, verse 46, is blessed is the servant in whom his master, when he comes, finds him so doing. Surely I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. So the reward is further responsibility. Now, how does this play out biblically? The individuals that are faithful now will be uh, rewarded by given positions of prominence and authority in the millennial kingdom after the physical return of Jesus Christ and his establishment of his kingdom on this earth, Revelation chapter 20. And as a result, those who are faithful now will be rewarded then with further responsibility, further placements of prominence within the kingdom of God. Individuals that seem completely irrelevant to this world, but their faithfulness to God is being noticed day in and day out. And as a result, when the kingdom of God finally arrives here on this earth, God will reward them openly for those things that they had done, giving them greater responsibility in the actual kingdom itself. That's the promise here. You see the same thing when you turn to Luke 13, and you can read this on your own when you have an opportunity. Luke 13, 22 through 30, and the parable of the minds. And as a result, to those who were faithful and occupied, more was given to them. But the word here used for servant is a Greek word that all of us should notice. It is the word doulos, which means in the Greek slave. One who has given their uh, subjected um, authority to another. Meaning, I as a Christian see myself as a slave to Christ. Now, we have to understand that that word has all kinds of connotations in our current society. Of course, slavery based upon racism, a slavery based upon uh, demographics and so forth throughout our world. But slavery in the Bible could often be a chosen position. A position that would allow an individual to attach himself to a household because they know that within that household they can be better provided for than they could if they were simply in the world themselves. But it does mean that we relinquish authority of our lives to the one in whom we are placing ourselves in subjection to. That's a concept of Christianity that many don't have any longer concerning Christ. In fact, throughout the New Testament, the word bondservant is used to aptly describe this self-willingness to subject ourselves to the authority of Jesus Christ. I like what one person said, everybody loves the idea of Jesus being their Savior, but not everybody is as thrilled with Him being your Lord. Jesus said it this way to the Father, not my will, but your will be done. When we become Christians, we are relinquishing our will to the will of God. And we're laying ourselves down before Him as a living sacrifice. Therefore, we then should consider that the most primary objective that I have is to fulfill the plan and purpose that God has for me here on this earth. Fulfilling the will that God has for me and allowing Him to use me for His glory. 
Now, I'll be honest with you, in talking with many today, I get the idea that when Christianity is considered or the idea or concept of God is discussed, they often see God as their cosmic butler, their genie that they keep with inside a bottle. And then when they need him, they rub the genie, you know, the the bottle in which he's contained through prayer and say, Lord, I need you. I have this need. I'm going through a bad time. I, I don't feel good, Lord. They look at him as another supplement in their cabinet above the sink. They take a little Jesus when they need him, and then when they don't, they just put him back and forget him until it's time to need him again. Or the consideration that he's our butler just waiting on us hand and foot to serve us rather than us to serve him. This is not biblical Christianity. I wouldn't even call it Christianity. I would call it a complete misunderstanding of what the Bible actually teaches. And the Bible teaches that when I give my life to Christ, I give my life to Christ. Surrendering all. Seeking to fulfill the will that He has for me. Because we all have responsibilities in Christ. Let us understand that. God doesn't save someone so that they can just simply ride the bench. God doesn't save someone so they may be a spectator uh, uh, and watching the field play out before them as others actively serve the Lord. There isn't a ministry within the body of Christ that's called the serve me ministry. There isn't a position in the body of Christ called the consumer where I simply come in and I look to be served rather than to serve, where I come in and I look to consume rather than to contribute. This isn't, again, biblical Christianity. Each and every one of you has been called with a purpose to fulfill within the body of Christ. Each and every one of you. There's no one who can come to me and say, Pastor Eric, I've been called to nothing. Good. The nothing ministry is somewhere else. Everyone's called to something. And once we realize that, we should be asking ourselves the question, how then do I discover what God has called me to? Well, you might be surprised in my answer to that. I'm not convinced that it's something that you need to discover. I'm fully convinced that it is something that's looking to discover you. I believe that God is looking for you and will show you where he would have you. Again, all called to the purpose of some plan within the body of Christ. For example, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Let's take a look at it together. It should be on the screen behind me. For grace you have been saved through faith. Now I know most of you will say, yeah, I memorized these in Sunday school. And that not of yourself, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. And often when those memory verses are given, verses 8 and 9 are always kept together. But in the Greek, verse 10 is included in that clause. Okay, this is the manner in which God saved you, through faith. Not of works, lest anyone shall boast. 
But why did he save you? What was the reason that he saved you? Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, meaning God has worked in us, to create in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A plan and purpose was designed for you before the foundations of the world, and the purpose that God saved you was to plug you into that plan, place you into that position within the body of Christ, that you may edify the church through the gifts that God has given you, but also glorify Him with the new life that God has given you by living for Him and for His purposes. This is the Christian faith. Many Christians who don't go into verse 10 find themselves very empty inside. They find themselves very dry. I have met many Christians who believe that they are called to the serve me ministry. I've met many Christians who believe that God has led them to simply be a consumer within the body of Christ. We've had people travel through this doors that before they started giving financially, they wanted to make sure that they were getting the most for their tithing bucks. That's exactly what one told me. Here's what I told him. Keep it. Keep it. Keep it. God will provide for us. Keep it. We don't need it. That's a consumer mentality. But let me tell you something about those folks. And I don't mean to be rude or mean in any way, but they are some of the most miserable people that you'll ever meet. Have you ever noticed that our culture, the more and more we become self-centered, self-absorbed, self-consumed, the more miserable we become? It's an incredible trade-off. It's amazing how they're incapable of having healthy relationships with others. In many cases, it's because... If they have that self-centered mentality, every relationship that they enter in, they are determining the value of that relationship based upon the, uh, of what they can gain from it and what they can consume from it. And if they're not getting those things, it's not a valuable or good relationship for them, and then they move on to someone else. But as a Christian, folks, our attitude should be the attitude of Jesus. I have not come to be served, but to serve. So how do we allow God's will to find us now that we know that it's out there? Well, believe it or not, Paul the Apostle told us clearly. And if you turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. After Paul develops one of the greatest theological books, the book of Romans, He concludes with these two verses that are fundamentally key to the understanding of the theology that precedes it. Notice what Paul says here at the end of this letter. Here's what you need to do to allow the will of God to discover you. He says here in verse uh, chapter 12, verse uh, 1, I beseech you therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So here's what you do. You lay yourself before the Lord, and as a sacrifice in Judaism was required to be 
um, spotless and, uh, you know, without blemish. We too should be obedient to the word of God, separate, allowing the spirit of God to separate us from the world. And then as he does so, that we simply lay ourselves before God saying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. That's what God is looking for from you. That you simply come to him in this attitude of surrender and say, Lord, I give you it all. And God will begin to show you what his will is for you. Verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, which is very easy to do, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is how it's done. God is looking for people that are willing to lay themselves down before him, holy and acceptable unto him, and saying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. That's number one, in allowing God to show you his will for your life. But there's another very practical thing that we can do. And that is, get moving. Get moving. God has a much easier time moving someone who's already moving. And I used to, Pastor Chuck used to say it this way. He used to say, you know, when you're making a snowman and you're getting that bottom that bottom ball, and of course you want that one to be the biggest. It's wonderful as you're making that large snowball, pushing it throughout the yard, you know, making the tracks in the freshly fallen snow yesterday, April 2nd, only in Chicago. But it is so true. The moment that big ball of snow stops rolling, It doesn't matter how many of the neighborhood kids you get, it is so hard to start again. It's much easier to move it when it's already moving. And so we often encourage people, as God is leading them to the position and plan and place that he has for them within the body of Christ, and I'm talking about the big body of Christ, the body of Christ throughout the world, start moving, get moving. How do I get moving? By fulfilling needs that I see around me. Somebody has a need, I'm capable of fulfilling it. Fulfill it. Get moving. I didn't realize that when I became a Christian at 16 years old, that I would ever be a pastor. I thought that the best I could hope for is to slide under the gates of heaven, you know, as Peter was closing them, you know, And just looking at the Lord and saying, I made it by that much. But then as my pastor asked me to become an assistant pastor, my wife and I on staff at at Elk Grove, Calvary Chapel of Elk Grove, God put me into a ministry that I thought for sure the angels had gotten the messages crossed as they were delivering them. My pastor asked me, he said, Eric, you know, we have a need, and that need is somebody to watch over the nursery of the church. I said, okay, great. I'll pray about that, that God uses someone else to fulfill it. Because I felt I was children impaired at that time. 
You know, after we had our daughter, when I got diaper changing down to 30 minutes, I thought I had accomplished something. And thank God that for those Velcro tabs, or she would have been holy in many different ways, you know. But here I am, my wife and I serving over the nursery, and I'm like, oh, this has to be wrong. There are so many more qualified people than me to serve within this ministry. And it was amazing, too, because, you know, I did it um, with, with Christian grudge. Uh, I would hem and haw about it. You know, I'd put out the toys, I'd pick up the toys, I'd wash the toys, I'd put out the toys, I'd pick up the toys, I'd wash the toys. But the kids loved me. I don't know what it was, you know. It's, you know, it's like, what is the, okay, kid, don't bother me. They just want to be all over you. You know, we had to wear ties at that church. Uh, it was very legalistic. No, I'm kidding. And they used to swing on it. Unfortunately, mine was a clip-on, you know. And I'm like, oh, Lord, you, this is just wrong on so many levels. You know, I was convinced. And, you know, of course, Dina was perfect. You know, she was just perfect at it, you know. Oh, my gosh, she was, you know. She just had all these kids love her and... You know, it was amazing. When we left to start this church, every time we went back, I was there for years, and they would ask me, how's Dina? I'm good too, thank you. You know, you know I was fine with filling in teaching. I was fine counseling, uh, working through theological issues. Oh, that was all great, but now here I am overseeing the nursery. And I'll never forget it. One Sunday, I was just up to here. And I'm checking people in. It's like, Next. Check the kid in. Really warm and welcoming in many ways. And after the last child was checked in, and they were all, of course, playing nicely and quietly right behind us, you know, there was less chaos in the six days of creation. As the last child was checked in and the service was about to start, I'm just like, oh, Lord, I am so wrong for this. And it was like an audible voice just spoke to me. He goes, would you knock it off? I don't know, does God talk to you like that? It's the way I get. And I didn't know God was preparing me to become a pastor of a church. And he spoke to my heart. He says, if you can't take care of the most precious things that human adults have, how will you be able to take care of individuals that are the most precious thing to me? And I was like, okay, Lord, I'm wrong and you're right. It was interesting because shortly after that, after God had spoke to my heart in that way, he started this church. See, God needed to prepare me before he could use me in the way that he desired to use me. And the love that I have for you is, I can't even express it. I care about each and every one of you. And I notice when you are not here, and I do keep a record, no, But it's incredible what God does. You see, often it's in those times where we just get moving that God prepares us the most for what he ultimately has for us. And so laying ourselves down before the Lord, accompanied with getting moving, will lead us to those things that God has for us. In Philippians chapter 3, 
Verses 13 and 14 should be on the screen behind me. Paul wrote this and he said it this way. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. But notice what he says. I haven't arrived yet. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind me and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Keep moving forward. Keep moving. Continue on. And yes, if there's a need in the church and you're able to fulfill it, fulfill it as part of you moving and getting going. It may not be the ultimate thing that God has for you, but it's a stepping stone. And in that stepping stone, God prepares you for what he ultimately has for you to do. Because none of us have been called to the serve me ministry or to simply remain a consumer. But then he goes on in verse 14. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul saw himself and the necessity of continuing to move forward regardless. Regardless. But that's the wise and faithful servant who during the Lord's absence is faithful to continue on in the ministry that he has been assigned to called to, whatever that may be, waiting for his master's return, anticipating his master's return. And he is demonstrating that by being faithful, by being wise. Do you see it? Yes, oh, the Lord could return at any moment. I'm going to be about the business that he has assigned for me, that I may be faithful, that I may be wise. Again, the wisdom is the practical application of the knowledge in which we have. But then there is another, the evil servant. And notice with me, if you will, back in Matthew 24. But the evil servant says in his heart, the master is delaying his coming. In the Greek, it's more along the lines of, he is never coming back. There's no point of me continuing on with what he has for me. There's no point of me sacrificing my own uh, self-needs and my own wants and my own desires in anticipation of his return because he's never coming back. And it's interesting In verse 49, he says, and begins to beat his fellow servants. And there is interesting grammatical evidence to show that it's those fellow servants who are faithful and wise. It's very interesting. This individual who decides in his heart that the Lord is not going to return, when seeing those who are living as if he will return at any moment, they make it difficult for them. They persecute them. Have you ever noticed that we live currently in a society that no longer pushes you in inspiration, but if you inspire to do something, you often find from others them trying to pull you backwards. Oh, don't be that fanatical about it. Don't be that radical about your Christian faith. There's no need to, you know. Individuals that are pulling you back rather than encouraging you to go forward. This individual apparently uh, lashes out at those who desire to do the right thing. 
those who desire to be faithful to the Lord in his absence, those who desire to be wise in the absence of their Lord. And then he goes on to demonstrate in this term to eat and drink, which is very interesting, that if you go up to verse 38 of chapter 24, Notice what Jesus said earlier, for those in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. It describes, as we said last week, an indifference towards God. So not only is he trying, somewhat persecuting those who are trying to do the right thing, but this individual also then begins to enter into a mindset and a disposition of the heart as one who is indifferent to God. Very interesting. And Jesus equates these characteristics that are on display as evil. As evil. And as a result, verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and an hour which he is not aware of. These individuals will be clueless because they will not be considering the times in which they live. Now, how close we are to the physical return of Jesus Christ, I don't know. But I do know this, that there isn't one prophetic fulfillment needed before the rapture of the church can occur. Not one. It could be at any moment. Personally, I was hoping that it would be right before I had to file my taxes for last year. Unfortunately, that didn't occur. I just touch on a sore subject for everybody? But we know that there's nothing more to take place before Jesus comes back for his church. They're unaware. As the New Testament develops the idea, they're sleeping. They're clueless. They're all looking for normal to return. And the idea of any kind of new normal terrifies them. Then in verse 51, interesting language. And he, and will cut him, that is the master will cut him into and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A lot here. Samuel with King Ahag. The idea of cutting in two is the idea of punishment. Judgment and punishment. That's the idea contained in this phrase. Accompanied with weeping and gnashing of teeth, which all scholars agree is a description of suffering in hell. Outside the wall of Jerusalem was an area called Gehenna. It was the garbage dump. It was constantly on fire. It was always burning. And the garbage, the refuge of the city was placed there. But also the executed bodies of those by the Romans were also tossed into that place outside the wall of Jerusalem, and you could on a daily basis not only see but smell the burning of flesh from that place. The Romans, and historians tell us, the Romans used such an area as a deterrent to scare people, to cause fear. Jesus says, all right, this is an illustration of what separation from God for eternity actually looks like. Hell is a real place. Hell exists. 
And you may say it's unfair that God would send anyone to hell. Well, let me take a step back and say this to you. What more can God do? What more can God do to keep people out of hell than to have sent his only begotten son? Then whomsoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. When you begin to accuse God of being unfair, how fair is that he himself came to pave a way for you to escape hell, a place originally created for the devil and his angels? How is it that we can call God unfair when he's done all that he can do to save us? The choice is yours. Sin is serious before God. Sin only could be overcome by the sacrifice, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That's how serious sin is in the eyes of God. It's something that would have been demonstrated time and time again with the sacrifices that were given at the temple before the Lord by the Jewish people and seeing a lamb in which they had um, bonded with and kept and nurtured until the time of its sacrifice and they would see it and realize what God was ultimately going to do on their behalf. But today we're really sensitive to animals, aren't we? And I understand that. I'm sensitive to animals too. Just ask my wife. When we're driving here, my wife has this incredible gift of seeing a squirrel coming out of nowhere to run across the street. I'm convinced of it. That somehow, someway, when she went to the optometrist, her glasses were given the squirrel feature. (laughs) And I'll be driving down the road and we'll be talking and, and just having a wonderful drive. And she'll go, stop, slow down, swerve, oh God! And then all of a sudden she'll see a squirrel be running down the tree just about to enter the road. Now, I'll be honest with you. If it was just me in the car with my music on, it would have just been a thump. (laughs) You know? And I don't have anything against squirrels. They're a little nutty. (laughs) I'll be here all weekend. But we are incredibly sensitive to animals, aren't we? And again, rightfully so. Unless they're cats. No. um, People don't understand that the chosen animal of God is dog. He put his name in and you just need to use a mirror to find it. G-O-D, get it? Did you guys all switch to decaf before you got here this morning? But can you imagine that family not only tending to that and nurturing that little lamb, but then having to walk with it and carry it in some places so it wouldn't fall to scarring or to any kind of blemish? and then handing it over and watching it be sacrificed on your behalf. It was meant to pull at the heartstrings of an individual, to consider the cost of sin. Sin is serious. And those who die apart from Jesus Christ will seriously have to stand before the Lord as the books are open, where every thought, every action Every, every uh, word out of our mouth is judged by God apart from Christ. And we have to find righteousness within and of ourselves only to find that there is no righteousness within us. Scary, scary thought. The good, faithful, and wise servant. The evil servant. And I'd like to close our time together this morning
by asking you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter, in his last letter before he was crucified upside down for the Christian faith, he wrote this to all the Christians who remained. And in his last few paragraphs, focused on the idea of the return of Jesus Christ. And this is what he said. Now, I want you to understand again that this is the last thing he wrote before he died. He had a wife that was crucified before him, historians tell us. He could have spared her crucifixion if he just would have simply renounced the Christian faith, but chose not to. He now is going to be put to death. He had children that, of course, succeeded him. And of course, he had the responsibility of serving the new formed body of Christ here on this earth. This is what he said. These are his last words. This is what was important to him. That's where I'm really getting. He wanted them to be reminded of this. He could have said anything. And I'm positive that the most important thing that he wanted to say was contained in these words. Let's read it together, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Meaning, you know this, but I want to write it again so you remember this. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord Jesus, our Savior, the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first... Understand that scoffers will come in the last days. They will be walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old. And the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of the ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, that is, the promise of his coming, as some count slackness. But he is long suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking and for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, 
look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells and dwells and dwells in the Greek.